this day and time when young couples are choosing not to have children, we simply can't appreciate the deep humiliation that Abraham's wife, Sarah, felt in her barrenness. Her problem was looked upon not simply as a a gynecological problem in that pre-scientific age. It was looked upon as a sign that she was in disfavor with God. She was being punished because of some sin in her life, so she could have no children. She was a disgrace to her husband. And she failed in the primary function, her primary function as his wife, that is, to bear him an heir. Many a time she probably cried herself to sleep at night. And she probably asked herself over and over again, what is wrong with me? What have I done to deserve this? She was barren and it was her curse. And now she was an elderly woman past at at least 90 years of age. And so it's no wonder then that when God came to announce to her that she would yet bear a son, she laughed. For after all, Abraham is a hundred and she is ninety. What a preposterous notion that she could have a child. And so she threw back her head and laughed. And like Mona Lisa's smile, there's something enchanting about the laughter of this elderly woman who had just received this absurd announcement. And so when she held her baby in her arms for the first time, she named him Isaac, which means laughter. Why did Sarah laugh? What's so funny? Isn't the Word of God to be taken seriously? If you hear something funny, writes George Bernard Shaw, seek its hidden meaning, for there's always some hidden meaning there. What is the hidden truth behind the laughter of this woman? In the first place, I think she probably laughed at the futility of the situation. I laughed because I didn't want to cry. How many times have you used that expression? (laughs) I laughed to keep from crying. There are some things that just won't change. There are some things that are unalterable. There are some things that are futile. There are some things that are hopeless. And if a person can laugh, At something futile, it is a sign of contentment and acceptance. And there had been long years, a lifetime of unspeakable uh, pain and disappointment. And I'd like to think, I don't have any proof for it, but I'd like to think that Sarah worked her way through all of that to a place where she accepted her barrenness and she was able to laugh the laugh of contentment. I want to give you one of those Dale Carnegie statements that that at first it seems so silly, but I want you to know it's one of life's titanic truths. It's this. Attitude is more important than fact. What happens to you is not near so important as how you take it, how you accept it. So how did Sarah accept her barrenness? And what was her attitude toward it, at least at the first? Well, her attitude toward her childlessness was the attitude of every Jewish woman in that time. They saw it as a disfavor of God. They saw it as God's punishment for their sin. That was their attitude for it. 
That was how they accepted it. I've done something that God's punishing me for. You know that tune, and so do I. We play that game, we play that tune all the time. So here stands a preacher, and there's a little casket containing the body of a little child. Out in front are grieving parents trying to find some meaning or some purpose in this death. And this preacher is standing before the casket of a little child who was walking down the street and some drunk coming around the corner loses control of his car, jumps up on the sidewalk, runs over the child, kills her. And the pastor stands, well-meaning preacher, to say, we don't understand this, but we know it is the will of God. We know that this is God's will, and so we accept it. Did you see that man standing in the rubble of Hurricane Elisha and announcing coast to coast his philosophy, his understanding of that devastation in South Texas? He said, well, I guess the man upstairs is trying to tell us something. And somebody put on a marquee out in West Texas, in Lubbock, Texas, after a tornado had blown the north side of Lubbock away. He put on the marquee of his business, All right, God, you win. And so the idea and the picture is that here's this kind of God who uses hurricanes and drunk drivers and tornadoes like chairs and whips to, to crack us into line. I want you to know I have a huge problem with that. Amen. The problem is that it, dis, it pictures a distorted concept of God. The idea it pictures of God is twofold and both of them are wrong. The first image of God it presents is that He's kind of a vengeful monarch, a kind of a cosmic bully who will use tragedy, you know, to punish us for something that we've done wrong. Reinhold Niebuhr, the great sociologist, contemporary, said that one day he asked his little daughter to go on a walk with him. She didn't want to go, and he made her. When they got back from the walk, he said, I'm so glad you decided to go on this walk with me today. We, I enjoyed it so much. And she said, I didn't decide to go on the walk with you. You're bigger than I am. I wonder how many people feel that kind of bitterness toward God. And so with a kind of a clenched fist and a snarl on their lips, they take life with resentment and kind of a, with a cold, sullen cynicism. They say, all right, God, you can do these things to me. You can make me barren if you want to. You're bigger than I am, but I'll hate you for it. And the truth is God's not like that. The truth is that God doesn't go around making mother women barren and motherless, and He doesn't go around making, uh, making your children sick and your business bankrupt in order to punish you for something you've done wrong. The fact is, God stands on His tiptoes wanting to bless you, and He delights in seeing you happy and fulfilled. And the second idea or image it presents of God is it presents him not only as a vengeful God, but one who is unfair. I just have an idea that Sarah would lie awake at night on her pallet or whatever she slept on, and she would say to God, are you sure you have all the facts about me? 
Are you sure you have all the data about my life? Is there, what is there that I've done to deserve this? And the question must have popped in her mind time and time again. Again, God's not fair to me. That's the struggle that Job had. For he lived in a day that taught that if you're having problems, it's because God's punishing you for some sin. And so he searched his life and heart and found none. And his friends would come to him, and they were a lot of help. They'd say, all right, Job, now come on, confess. Who is she? You know, I mean, let's get it out. Let's, let's get it off our chest. If you'll get right with God, all these things won't happen to you. And it's, the Scripture says, if you'll read the book of Job, that he wrestled with his hands, and he said, they're pure. And he wrestled with his heart, and he says, it's pure. And I don't understand why God's doing this to me. He must be unfair to me. And I don't have any proof for it, but I'd like to think that Sarah worked her way through this to discover, to believe, to say, God didn't make me barren. It's just what's happened to me in life. And she laughed the laugh of acceptance. Or perhaps she laughed in fearful anticipation. I mean, she laughed like one who wants to believe in a miracle but feels it would be foolish to do so. There's a little bit of that in every one of us here. Now you listen carefully. Down deep inside of us, we'd like to believe that our world is not just a closed system of cold scientific truth. We'd like to believe that above this life of ours, there is one or something that transcends it and transforms it. We'd like to believe in miracles, wouldn't we? And there's so many of us who are like the father of the epileptic boy in Mark's gospel who came to Jesus to say, my child is in trouble. And I've come to your disciples and they're not able to help. He gets into these seizures and sometimes he falls in the fire. One day he's going to die. Can you help me? And Jesus looked at the father and said, I can if you believe I can. And the father looked back at Jesus and said, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I want to believe in miracles, help me believe them, because I can't. I want to believe in the supernatural, can you help me believe in the supernatural? For the secular world just keeps on telling us that everything around us is explainable, definable, and predictable. But there's something in each one of us that knows that's just not the case. For everybody here can re recall times in his life when there are things that have happened that have been unexplainable. When we got in our backs against the wall, I was in college when that happened to me, back against the wall, all my resources were gone and a check came in the mail just in the nick of time. Or you can recall the time the doctor stood out in the hall of the hospital and said with awed tones, you know that, that spot that was on that original x-ray? It has mysteriously disappeared. Amen. Or some patrolman, uh, patrolman stands there kind of shaking his head and scratching his head and saying, I don't know how anybody walked away from this accident alive. Now when we're talking to sophisticated folks, we might refer to those things as luck or chance or providence even. 
But down deep inside of us, there is this little boy or little girl who is shouting and clapping and saying, Thank you, Lord. For if only about your life, if the only thing about your life is something that can be explained, defined, or predicted, it's a sad state of affairs. Now I want you to look at the tension here. And this thing just leaped out at me as I was working on this text. Look at the tension. I can settle down and accept the unchangeable. I know there's some things that won't change. And I know that it's a good thing to be able to come to the place in life where I can laugh with contentment and say, okay, that's just the way it is. And if I'm a 90-year-old woman and I don't have a baby, chances are pretty slim that I'll ever have one. And so it might, I might as well smile the smile of contentment and accept that. But before you give up on anything, you have to answer the question of verse 14. And that question is, is there anything too difficult for the Lord? Now I want you to hear this. Before you smile and accept and laugh, the laugh of contentment and say, all right, I'll accept it. There's no change. There's no alteration. That's a futile situation. Hopeless. Somebody is going to have to answer verse 14. Is there anything too hard for God? For the thing that Abraham and Sarah encountered in this experience was that having that baby was not up to them, but up to God. <laughs> That's a good word. Can you hear me now? Are you listening? As Bo Baker said out there every, about every 15, about every five minutes, are you listening now? Are you ready for this? Are you listening? All of our fears and all of our heartaches and all of our worries and anxieties, our inhibitions and insecurities are based upon a misconception, a distorted idea that you and I are supposed to be adequate on our own. We are not and we never will be. Let me give you a definition of... of uh, of uh, impossibilities. This is kind of the Tidwell definition of an impossibility. An impossibility is what God uses as raw material for miracles. So you can praise God for an impossibility because it's just a raw material God's going to use for a miracle. And until there is an impossibility in your life, God can't get any glory in it. You know why God allowed Sarah to be barren for 90 years? You think he didn't, she didn't pray for a child? Of course she did. That was all she did, pray for a child. And you think God didn't hear her prayer? Of course he did. I suspect he heard her the first time she prayed for a child and probably answered the prayer then because in eternity past, before there was the foundation of the world God planned for Isaac to be, and God just kind of said to Jesus, perhaps, son, I'm going to answer Sarah's prayer, but I'm going to delay the answer to a point in time when I'll get all the glory for it. Amen. For the question that verse 14 encounters, the one who's on trial in verse 14 is not you, but God. Is anything too hard for God? You see, the question is not, is anything too difficult for Abraham and Sarah? The question to that is yes. But, but Sarah and Abraham are not on trial. God is. Is anything too difficult for him? 
Now let me say parenthetical here. I need to say this because it's probably the largest crowd I'll get, I'll, ha I'll have in this place until next Wednesday night, at least. <laughs> We're going to begin a television ministry in this church. We've already ordered the equipment. And we're going to have one channel 24 hours a day to not only broadcast our services live, but everything else in town that we want to put on that, on that channel. And I've chosen, I felt led of God to lead our church to launch out on that, that thing by faith. We don't have the money for that. We, when we ordered it, we don't have the money for it. You don't have the money to contribute to it, neither do I. I mean, I'm stretched beyond my limit. But I felt God leading us to make this decision at the crossroad in our church, and it seems weird and totally unacceptable to every kind of business practice and principle. But I want us to put God on trial and prove that He's able. He's the one on trial, not us. If God leads us to do it, and we've sensed He has, then is anything too difficult for the Lord? Lord Ovis said a lady, a man came into his office just before uh, closing time, before he was about to leave, and this man had been counseling with him for weeks. And he said, he sat down, he said, well, let me, let's just get to the heart of it. He said, what do you believe that it, in, in the deepest part of your being, what do you believe is your problem and what can I do about it? Said the man, looked back at him and said, I need a new God. And he went on to say, he said, I've got the same old struggles and we've been all over this before. He said, I need a new God. Lloyd Ogilvy said, I sat up on my chair on the edge of it and we got down to where it was. We need a new God. And we recall the time when Moses heard God speaking out of the burning bush and he went over there to that burning bush and God said, I want you to go into, back to Egypt and deliver my people. And he said, man, I can't do that. You know how the story goes. And finally, when he's getting ready to convince him to go be the leader, he said, who shall I say sent me? He said, tell him the I am sent you. And you probably have a footnote if you have an American, a New American Standard Bible. That word translates from the Hebrew word uh, Yahweh. And this new name for God has a new and special meaning. It, 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 it's, based, it's based on the Hebrew infinitive hazad. It's a word that means to be or to cause to be. And when you add the prefix yah to it, it becomes the third person singular uh, masculine plural, which means the God who makes things happen. And so God said to Moses, you go down to Egypt and you tell them that the God who makes things happen has sent me to you. That's just what they needed to hear. The Yahweh, the I Am, was the Lord of their struggles, the Lord of their circumstances, the Lord of victory over their lives. And when Jesus came, He used the same terminology 23 times in the book of John. He says He's the great I Am. He not only claimed to be God, He claimed to be just like God was in Egypt. And so Jesus is saying, I am the God, the great I Am, who makes things happen. And He indwells you. And He indwells you. I've known Jesus Christ for 26 years. And I'm here to tell you that there's never been a specific struggle in my life that He and His promises have not been adequate to meet. 
And I have listened for 25 years to people talk about the struggles of their life. And I want to tell you, I have never seen a sin or a broken relationship or a problem that He could not heal and save. The issue is not that I have had some specific problem and I've trusted Him and He's been unresponsive or inadequate. My problem is I've just not trusted Him soon enough. The real issue is, will you let the God, the great I Am, be the Lord of your struggles and life? Do you believe He can perform a miracle? I want to believe it. Help me believe it. I've got to hurry and I know it's 15 minutes till. I've got two more short points hanging there. When I was looking over this sermon, I didn't read it anywhere, but I guess, you know, it just came to me. My mind works sometimes kind of goofy. But I got to thinking, I, I, perhaps Sarah laughed when she thought about the reaction of other people to her pregnancy. Can you imagine what other people are going to say about Sarah, a 90-year-old woman with a baby, and it's her own I mean, get this picture if you can. You're down in whites, ladies ready to wear. And, and you're a clerk down there and, uh, or just, you know, just kind of a, a bystander. You're in there one Tuesday morning and in totters this little old woman on a cane, wrinkled and white and old. And she comes up to you, the clerk, and says, do you all have maternity clothes? And, and you, you, you're, you're going to say, oh, you're having a grandbaby in your family, a great-grandbaby in your family? And she says, no, I'm pregnant. Now, I, I dare you to hear that happen and keep a straight face. I mean, you can't even keep a straight face now. Can you imagine what it was like when Abraham and Sarah rode their camel down to Kmart and went in to get some... <laughs> And, and went in and, and to get some, some pampers, you know, and, and we're just bragging to everybody we're going to have a baby. Can you imagine the reaction, the, the reaction people had to that? L listen to me. What God is about in this world is so unexplainable and, and so uh, unlike the ordinary that when you're about what God is about in the world, you sometimes are going to look like a fool. Are you ready for that? I mean, when you're, when you're getting in on what God is doing in this world, you're going to find a lot of people who are not only going to laugh at you, they're going to mock you and they're going to scoff at you, just like they must have done Abraham and Sarah. What are they doing with a baby? They don't need a baby. And I've just finished Jack Taylor's book, After the Spirit Comes, and he talks about old Peter in that boat that's riding along there with his friends, and he saw the Lord walking on water, and Jesus said, Come, Peter. And he started crawling out of that boat. And Jack Taylor said, When you start crawling out of the boats of nominality, and you start walking by faith and living by faith and being obedient to God by faith, you're going to get all of this advice from people in the boat who've never walked on water. You ready for that? I think I'm ready for that. I think I've come to a place in my life and as the pastor of First Baptist Church of Durant, Oklahoma, to be ready for that.
to be so in love with God and so in love with His will that I'm ready to look like a fool to do what He wants us to do. Are you ready for that? One last word, please. Perhaps Sarah laughed the laugh of joyful anticipation. I know she did later. I can just see her and Abe. I can just see her and Abraham lying awake at night, listening to that little baby, sleeping its sleep, breathing its breath. And they must have just laughed. They laughed as they, as they would lie awake and listen to that baby. They laughed in joyful excitement of this miracle of God. Jean-Paul Sartre, the French existentialist, says that life is absurd, therefore there is no God. He got it completely backwards. The very fact that life is absurd is the reason we can believe in God. If life were explainable and predictable and definable in every sense, then we might pass God off as not existing. But it is the, it is the very absurdness of life that gives us hope. A baby, the savior of a world, born in a manger. How absurd. A blood-spattered cross has been the hope of millions in every centuries. How incredible. A group of fishermen and, 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 and farmers and tax gatherers and housewives totally convinced that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and with that faith conquered an empire. How incredible and unbelievable. I tell you, it is the absurd that makes, that gives us hope. And it's the laughter of Sarah and the Virgin Mary and Lazarus raised from the dead that says to me and to you, there is nothing that's too difficult for God. And how that laughter needs to begin. And I found this little verse and I'll give it to you and I'll quit. The 126th Psalm begins like this. When Jehovah brought back his exiles to Jerusalem, it was just like a dream. And he filled our mouth with laughter. How we laughed and sang for joy. And the other nations said, what amazing things the Lord is doing for them. When you and I begin to trust God, to make wombs barren and money to be there for television equipment. And when we begin to trust God to enable us to meet the struggles of daily life and we begin to see God doing those things that are unexplainable, He'll fill our mouths with laughter and these halls of this church and this auditorium will ring as we shout for joy and the people around us will say, God's doing great things for them. Bow your heads to pray.
Father, we face the question this morning, is anything too difficult for the Lord? There are so many problems and struggles in our life, Father. We've wrestled with them and we've encountered them and we've debated them. Oh, God, we're tired of the very struggle. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? I come this morning to say, Father, on behalf of these hungry hearts, do in our midst something that's not definable, explainable, predictable. God, perform a miracle of your grace in our life today so that our mouths will be filled with laughter and we can shout for joy. I pray that we'll not be willing to go away satisfied with what we ourselves are able to do. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Now would you look this way. Our invitations today are three. They're simultaneous. You can come on the first word if you're coming for any of these invitations. The first invitation is for you to come and give your life to Jesus Christ. You, it would take a miracle for you to be born again. Only God can do that. He wants to perform a miracle in your life. He wants to break the bondages of your life. He wants to free you. He wants to save you. He wants to make you a brand new, the word is species of being. Will you trust Him for that miracle? Now it's totally beyond the realm of your possibilities and adequacies. But I tell you, if you give your heart and life to Jesus Christ, He'll work in you a miracle. Some of you want to come this morning to say, I want to give my heart to Jesus. I want to be saved. And so I'm coming to claim that salvation He bought for me in heaven and on the cross. Second invitation is for you to come to say, I want to begin the walk of faith. I want to begin to trust God for everything in my life. I want to place my life in total commitment to His Lordship as this coach suggested. The third invitation is for you to come and join our church. You're here from, uh, as a college student, perhaps back from the summer. You've transferred your membership. We want you back. We want you to join us. To be able to say that I'm involved in the local church will enable you to have a greater witness on the campus. And if the Holy Spirit knew of any other way to reach the world than through the church, He'd have told us. Well, there are going to be so many of us come that we're going to have to have several counselors. I just know it. You'll need to come right on a first word. It's the easiest time to come when we start to sing. You come right now while we stand to sing.